Tonight, I want to talk about the second five parts of this Making Wise Decisions series. The precedent, perspective of counsel, people, patience, and process. So let's talk first about precedent. When you're making a decision, um, you need to look back and see how this has been handled in the past. In the legal system, uh, this precedence is very important. You want to know what's been done in the past when people were confronted with this same type of a problem or a court case. Uh, you want to decide this next case based on the precedent of past cases. How were these ruled on in the past? So we can ask ourselves in a more personal way, what does history teach me about this decision? Whether it is world history, state history, our personal life history, people that we know. When other people have made a similar decision, what happened to them? How did that turn out? And you're looking at your personal history. Look back and think about times you've made a similar decision and find out if you're making another unproductive or even destructive decision that will lead to some unintended consequences that you really don't want to deal with in your life. For example, if you have a history of spending impulsively, well, if you think about that next purchase, maybe you should stop and not be so impulsive and think about what happened to you when you made a similar decision in the past. What happened to your budget? What happened to your credit score? What happened to your marriage <laughs> when you made that decision in the past? And then what about looking at the decisions that other people have made, history of other people. Uh, you don't need to make every mistake in the world to learn how to make good decisions. I've made it a goal in life to not learn from my mistakes. I've made it a goal in life to learn from your mistakes or someone else's, you know. I would rather you make the mistake and let me observe you and learn the lesson that way than to go through that myself and make a bad decision and live with the consequences of that. But some people are hard-headed. They can't be told anything. Uh, the Bible calls them a lot of things. A scorner. A fool. They can't be told anything. They always perceive instruction as another infliction of pain. They only learn by experience. And you've heard me say this before. But they would prefer to go to the school of hard knocks. Where the school colors are black and blue from all the bruises that they've gotten in life. How did, how did this turn out for other people in the past? George Santayana said that uh, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. So if you don't remember what happened, if you block it out, if you don't think, if you don't stop long enough to ponder the path of your feet, the Bible says, then you're liable to make another bad decision. The Old Testament is a book of examples showing consequences for decisions that Israel made, especially when they wandered in the wilderness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul said, I would not that you would be ignorant about our fathers. And he, he compares their salvation in the Old Testament to ours. They were uh, under the cloud. They, were, they passed through the sea. They were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now I'll just pause right here to say, you know, I think we have this salvation thing right. Water and spirit. They were baptized under the cloud and th that, that cloud, that spirit sort of, and they were baptized in the sea. A dual baptism like spirit and water in the New Testament. They all ate the same spiritual meat, went to the same church. They all got manna that fell out of the sky they all drank the same spiritual drink, the water that came out of the rock. But Paul said with many of them, God was not well pleased. And they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6, 1 Corinthians 10, 6 on the screens. Now these things are our examples. We're going to learn from precedence. What happened to people who made a similar decision in the past? And Paul said, to the intent, we should not lust after evil things 
as they also lusted. And then he gives a list in verses 7 through 10 of the types of sins that were committed by Old Testament Israel. And then in verse 11, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, Paul said, Now all these things happened unto them for examples, in samples, the King James says. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. All of this was written so we could learn from the past, the precedents of history, so that we would not fall into the same trap. And Paul goes on to say, when you think you stand, you're probably going to fall. Take heed when you think you stand, lest you fall. And then he goes on to say that there's no temptation that will ever come into your life that is not common to man. But don't think you're the first person who has ever experienced that. Our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, faced temptation in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. How did that turn out for them? Not so well. But Paul said God is able to make a way of escape that we can bear it. So precedent is vital in making decisions. What can I learn from the past? The second thing tonight, which is the seventh point, is a perspective of counsel. The perspective of counsel. Now, because we are not God, we're not the wonderful counselor, we need to have other counselors in our life. What is the perspective of counsel? And the reason we need counsel, there's multiple reasons, but for one, we don't know everything. Amen? Amen? And because we have blind spots. Most vehicles have a blind spot somewhere. At the tender age of 16, I totaled my 1966 Chevelle. This sounds cooler than it really was, but I wish I had it now. I didn't see another car that was coming pretty fast in a blind spot. And thankfully, we hit her in this old giant boat of a Lincoln Continental instead of her hitting us, and probably why my cousins, brothers, and I were not killed. But a blind spot. New cars have blind spot indicators. In case you're wondering, uh, that first came out on a Volvo in 2006. A blind spot indicator. Well, God gave us some blind spot indicators. Might be a spouse, a friend, a pastor, a spiritual leader in your life, an elder, and when it comes to ourselves, none of us are objective. Our mirrors are a little bit distorted when we try to see ourselves. Remember, our magnifying glasses are great. We can always find and see everyone else's faults. But when we see ourselves, or sometimes when we see our families, we have a distorted lens. We're not as objective as we think we are. We are subjective. And so, we need to hear from other people. If you're a young person, or even until my parents passed away, I want to counsel with my parents. I want to know what my mom and dad, when my grandfather was alive, when I was making a big decision, I talked to him. Spouses, siblings, pastors, or pastoral staff members, or ministry, and godly friends. We need some blind spot sensors and monitors in our lives so we don't dive off and make bad decisions in our lives. By the way, that Volvo was an S80 in 2005. So we need blind spot indicators. So here's some verses on the multitude of counselors. Proverbs 11:14, Where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. So this is important. I'll just pause to say the multitude of counselors. God Almighty and Jesus Christ in the flesh was the the, the wonderful counselor. But everyone else has imperfect knowledge. We see through a glass darkly. We know in part. And I know that's related especially to the gifts of the Spirit. But the multitude of counselors. So you seek advice from more than one person. So you get the multitude of counselors and various perspectives. Recently someone I know is making a decision. And they asked me my opinion. And I told them, you know what? The type of decision you make requires people with some expertise in this particular field. You need to talk to several people who know that type of decision. I can give you my feeling. I can give you my thoughts. 
But why don't you counsel with people who know that subject well and have experienced the multitude of counselors? Proverbs 15, 22. Without counsel, purposes are disappointed. But in the multitude of counselors, they're, uh, excuse me, they are established. Proverbs 24, 6. For by wise counsel, thou shalt make thy war. For your plans, your life dreams, whatever it is you're trying to do, the wise man Solomon said, by wise counsel, you'll make thy war. And in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Now, as a leader, I recognize that I need other people in the boat with me because I have blind spots. I am not omniscient. I don't know everything. So I believe in the multitude of counselors. I believe it's important to listen to people, especially elders in your life. And I've always had, I'm, I've been blessed with trusted people in my life. Now, I will admit that at this season of my life, a lot of my elders are in heaven. And so I can't call them anymore. Uh, the people that I would have talked to in the past, if I had a conundrum, something that I couldn't solve. But I've learned, and I want to say this especially to young people. And I want to say, I know we have a lot of young people at camp. And I want to say this especially in the context of, of dating relationships. If the people that you have always listened to are suddenly wrong, and you have tuned them out, regardless of the decision, but this seems to be most common when it has to do with romance. The way of a man with a maid. Even Solomon, the Bible said, the wisest man in the world did outlandish women cause to sin. It's not always a woman. It could be a bad man. But I just want to really emphasize this, that people that you trust today, even when you don't like what they're saying to you, you need to listen to them. You have blind spots. We all do. You are not infinitely wise. And God put people in your life to guide you and help save you from making a colossal mistake in your life. And I also want to say that I believe that God put elders in our life because of experience and accumulated wisdom. King Rehoboam of Israel followed his father Solomon. And after Solomon died, Rehoboam was trying to decide his approach to leading the people. So he talked to the people and they said, if you'll slack up a little bit on how harsh your dad was, how much he exacted of us, we'll serve you. And so Rehoboam went and he started counseling with the elders, the old men, and this is in 1 Kings 12 and 8. We'll read a few verses here. Excuse me, let me back up. I'm so, let's hold that verse just for a moment. So he counsels with the older men. They said, you know what? If you'll listen to that, and if you will serve these people, everything will be fine. And so he listened to that counsel. And then in verse 8, 1 Kings 12, 8, but he forsook, the counsel of the old men, which they had given him. And he consulted with the young men that were grown up with him and which stood before him. So he, he kind of threw out the counsel of elders and he listened to the counsel of peers. They didn't have any more years than he did. They didn't have more experience than they did. And they also probably... Or wanting to tell him what he wanted to hear. They did not have the courage to confront them. To confront Rehoboam. So he asked them what he should do. And they told him. You need to go back and tell those people. And I'm going to paraphrase. If you think my dad was rough. Wait till you see how I treat you. My little finger. It's going to be thicker than my father's thighs. My father laid a heavy yoke on you. He chastened you with whips, but I'm going to chasten you with scorpions. The third day, the people came back. They answered, the king answered the people roughly. 
This is second, First Kings 12 and 13, not on the screens. And they forsook the old men's counsel that they gave him. And spake to them after the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, and I will add to your yoke. My father also chastened you with whips, but I will chasten you with scorpions. He listened to his peers. Now, I don't think that young people are all foolish. Although the Bible said that foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. So from early on, we're not inherently wise. Wisdom is accumulated. It is mined like silver and gold. It is given by God if any man asks. God gives to all men liberally. He doesn't take it back. There can be a word of wisdom, which is not accumulated wisdom. But wisdom can happen through the experience of life. So I'm not disparaging, speaking disparagingly of young people. But I'm just telling you what the Bible says. That you need to have some elders in your life. And you need to listen to them. And you need to give them permission to tell you the truth. Even when they feel reluctant because they don't want you to reject them either. Someone told me one time that if a person has themselves for a teacher, they have a fool for a teacher. And I will say if you have yourself for a counselor, you have a fool for a counselor. So I want to say this respectfully. If the only people who are speaking into your life are your peers, it is possible that the counsel you are receiving is not wise. If you only have one person that you ever talk to and they always tell you what you want to hear, that is not the multitude of counselors. And my best advice has always come from people who did not have a vested interest. They didn't have a dog in the fight, a horse in the race. They loved me, they believed in me, and they wanted the best for me, and they had nothing to gain or lose by what I did. They were, they were purely Looking out for my good. That's been my best counsel all my life. Amen. So surround yourself with godly people. Include elders in the decision making process. Don't surround yourself with yes men or women. And even as you get older. What I have observed. Is people are a little reluctant to tell you. What you really need to hear. So you need to make sure they have permission. I've shared with you before. But especially in leadership context, the story of uh, the emperor's new clothes. I'm not going to tell that whole story tonight, except to tell you that there are a lot of people that had something to lose by telling the king that he was not wearing clothes. But everybody was told that you're not wise, you're not worthy if you can't see these beautiful clothes. And I reread the story again today just to refresh it in my memory but I don't ever want to be that guy who will not let anybody talk to me. They would rather see me make a fool out of myself than have to come to me and talk to me and help me. And you need to be the kind of person that welcomes the multitude of counselors in your life so that you're not exposed in some way and making a fool out of yourself in life. The perspective of counsel. Point seven. The eighth Concept is people, the people in your life. And what I mean by this is that most decisions we make affect other people. You don't live to yourself. You don't die to yourself. You don't live in a silo or a vacuum. The decisions we make, most always, especially major decisions, affect other people. Now, I'm not saying this point about people in making wise decisions, to please people, but in consideration of people. I'm not talking about being politically correct in fear of being canceled. I'm talking about being aware that what you do affects someone else. So people are a, fact, people are a factor in making wise decisions because we live in a community of people. In the Bible... One of the things the early church continued in was fellowship. And fellowship is a community of people. We have a family. We have friends. We have a church family. We have neighbors. We have co-workers. You know, we have a world in which we live. And whatever your personal universe is, your solar system of life, people are affected by the decisions that we make. And when you make a decision, 
only considering what is best for you, you're prone to make a poor decision. Now I want to talk about a decision tonight that some people have made. And I, I thought this through before I repeated this. But I spoke about this in 2015. I'm not sure if I spoke about it years ago when I taught on this subject. But one of the most radical decisions that people make is the decision to take their own life. They may feel hopeless or worthless, but when they take their life, they're thinking that everyone else will be better off without them. But they are wrong. They are so wrong. <laughs> Suicidal thoughts might blind the person to the effect of their actions, the effect that their actions will have on other people. And this is where I have it in my notes, so you understand that I'm not talking about a contemporary situation, although we are aware of them. You may feel, I'm saying this again on purpose, you may feel that the world would be better off without you. You may feel that your family would be better off if you were not around. But that is a terribly distorted perspective. Elijah did not take his life, but he, deceived, he, he wished that he could die. He asked the Lord if he could die. Paul spoke about despairing even of life, but he didn't take his life. God should be in charge of that decision. Your family needs you, and you do not need to leave them to deal with the aftermath of suicide. Now again, I'm not saying that because I feel someone here is battling with that. But we should be aware that we live in a world where suicidal thoughts and suicidal actions are real. And I'm talking about making wise decisions and not making self-centered decisions, even if they may not seem like prideful decisions, that decision is still all about you. And it's a dangerous decision that leaves a lot of other people in your life to live with the consequences of your decision and wondering if they were the cause of your actions. Romans 14, 7 and 8. This is where what I said earlier is in my notes. For none of us lives to himself. No one dies to himself. Other people are affected. Remember, we're talking about making wise decisions. And this point is about the people in your life. Verse 8, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Paul said to live as Christ, to die is gain. But he put that in God's hands. He did not take that into his own hands. So when you're making a decision, you need to ask, how will this decision affect the people in my life? How will it affect my parents, siblings, spouse? How will it affect my children and grandchildren? How will this decision affect our church members? I'm talking about people with whom you worship. What about the ministries to which you are committed? The decision to just miss and not tell or to just drop out when you could stay on or to not serve. How does that affect other people? Those decisions affect other people. Now I want to talk about Lot's bad decision. Lot was told by Abraham, you know, Lot, you pick, you pick where you want to live. And Lot, the Bible said, he looked at the well-watered plains. Like, why would you not pick that? And so Lot shows that, Genesis 13. He thought it was best for his flocks and his herds. And Lot ignored the impact that the cultural climate of Sodom and Gomorrah would have on his family. His decision imposed a sinful city and that climate on his wife and his two daughters. Lot was only thinking about pasture land. And you may be making a decision kind of myopically or focused on one thing and not really seeing the big picture. How will this affect the people in my life? It's not just about the flocks and the herds. Where's my wife going to live? Where am I taking my daughters? What kind of a decision is this, Lot? Well, Lot's wife and his daughters, they weren't interested in the grasslands. They were caught up in the malls in Sodom. 
they were thinking about the social life in Gomorrah or whatever. The Bible said in Genesis 13, 12, Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. The King James says toward, he aimed his life toward that city. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. I don't really have it in my notes here. I talked about it last week. But if you make a decision to move, what about the church? How will this affect my family? What about the people, Lot, in your life? He ends up living in Sodom. And there are a lot of other things that followed, unintended consequences of that decision that was all about money. It was all about well-watered plains and flocks and herds multiplying and becoming more wealthy. What's amazing about this decision that Lot made, Abraham takes the leftovers, becomes more wealthy and more blessed, even in the rugged hillside, because God honored his faithfulness to him. Lot basically loses everything. His two daughters marry men in the city. When the angels come to Lot and tell them to get out, that God will destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot goes to his sons-in-law. Genesis 19.14 When he told them, get out of this place. The Lord will destroy the city. The new King James says, but his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. Can you imagine the lack of credibility? To go tell someone in your family there's a tornado coming and them laugh at you? Why? You have no credibility with your own family, with your sons-in-law. The people of Sodom ridiculed him for moving there and trying to judge them. When the angels are there and they're trying to know the men that had come to stay with Lot, Lot tries to stop them. And this is what they said. This one came in to stay here. And he keeps acting as a judge. Lot, you moved into this neighborhood. You knew who we were. You knew what Sodom and Gomorrah was like. You chose to live here. Now, I don't think you have the credibility to judge us for the kind of people that we are. Lot's poor decision caused him to forfeit his credibility. And you cannot condone and condemn at the same time. Genesis 19, 26. They're leaving the city. Lot's wife looks back, becomes a pillar of salt. Lot goes with his daughter. He begs to go to a small city, Zoar. They go up into the mountains. I'll make this generic for our audience here tonight. But there's an incestuous relationship. Two children are born, Moab and Ammon, the daughters of Lot, by their father. This is where Lot ends up. When Lot made the decision to choose the well-watered plains, he was not thinking about how will this decision affect the people in my life. So I want to just urge you to think carefully about what you're doing when you make a decision and who that decision will affect. For example, the person you choose to marry affects more than just two people, more than just you. You may think that you don't care what your family thinks about your spouse or future spouse for a while, but after a while you will. If you don't like that, listen to a gray-headed, experienced person, the counsel of an elder. You will eventually care what your family and their family think. You may not like this, but in a way you marry a family, not just the person whose name is on the marriage license. Like it or not, just go ask 30 other people to get the multitude of counselor if I'm wrong about that. If you're a single parent, you need to consider very carefully about remarriage. Some would even say, wait till your children are grown. But I'm not going to try to go there or judge you because there's so many different situations. But I can tell you this, you need to think about the people who are affected. And as much as possible, have their buy-in. Make sure that you're considerate of them. And make sure you understand the dynamics and get lots of education.
depending on the circumstances, the decision to get a divorce fails to factor the fallout to so many people, especially children. And I've studied it with a broken heart to know, the, and I've observed the long-lasting effect. And sometimes it is not in your power. And I'm not saying that to condemn an innocent party here tonight. I'm just telling you when it is in your hand, do everything in your power to maintain that marriage. Unless it is irretrievably broken, make it work. My mom told me years ago, you know, Daryl, your dad and I didn't always see eye to eye. We didn't always get along. We went through tough financial times. But we were taught when you get married, you stay married till death is too part. So we knew we didn't have a right to divorce, so we worked it out. And 66 years later, the day before my dad died, I spoke about that on Father's Day. You know, guess what? They were still married, and they had four kids that turned out pretty decent except for the oldest. But anyway. So my perspective on the people in my life, <clears throat> it's almost impossible <clears throat> for me to make a decision of any magnitude that does not affect my wife. Decisions that I make affect our family, this church, my ministry. I work hard to being accountable in the decisions that I make, understanding the ramifications of my choices. John Maxwell observed that the person with the fewest personal rights in any organization is the person who leads that organization. You may think you have more rights if you lead it. You actually have fewer. You give up personal freedom to go up in responsibility. And your so-called or perceived rights are always offset by your responsibilities. A husband is the head of his house, but he's the love of his Wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. There's responsibility that comes with the right or privilege of a position. So decisions are not made in a vacuum. They are made in community. The people who surround you should be considered and should be consulted if you're going to make a wise decision. Principles, purpose, priorities, prayer, the peace of God, precedent. Perspective of counsel, people, number nine, is patience. Patience. And your patience, possess ye your soul. There's an old saying that love can wait, but lust is impatient. After I taught part one several years ago, Brother Buddy Simmons, one of our great elders he's passed on, gave me what he always called a gold nugget. A wise saying. He said, never make a major decision when you're discouraged. Because you're probably going to make a bad decision if you make it when you're down, if you're not patient. When I was in Bible college, Brother Jeff Arnold was teaching a class. And he said, never make a decision under a juniper tree. He was referring to Elijah who went a day's journey, 1 Kings 19.4. He sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die. I referred to that a while ago when I was speaking about suicide. He said, it is enough, O Lord. Take away my life. He didn't say, I'm going to take my life. He asked the Lord to take away his life. And he said, for I am not better than my father's. Now, I love that little phrase. And I talk to leaders about that little phrase a lot. Because, yes, it is true. You are not better than your fathers and mothers. And neither am I. Whoever decided that we were smarter, better, more advanced, we have it all figured out, and they were dumb and ignorant, we're not better than past generations cut out of the same dirt, right? Anyway. But Elijah, exhausted, just seen a mighty victory, and what goes up must come down. And the real battle is often after the great victory. And Elijah just... He was kind of like that anyway, sort of up and down personality, but he wants to die. Well, wait a minute, hold on, don't, don't die yet, just wait. Now, the Bible says a lot about patience. Proverbs 14, 29 on the screens. He was slow to wrath, has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. New King James, by the way. Everybody say impulsive. Impulsive. 
Proverbs 14, 29. He that is slow to wrath is of great understanding. Oh, pardon me, I have, I have two translations here. Proverbs 21, 5, New King James. The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty surely to poverty. Another verse, Proverbs 29, 20. Do you see a man hasty in his words, impulsive, you know? There is more hope for a fool than of him. When Daniel was talking to King Nebuchadnezzar, he said, King Nebuchadnezzar, I'm afraid that you're acting in haste. The Bible said that the king was angry. He was furious. He was trying to kill Daniel and his fellows. And, and you know, Daniel wanted to know, why is the decree so hasty from the king? You got mad? Something triggered you? You're going to make a fool out of yourself by acting hastily. And Daniel went to him. He desired that the king would give him some time. Be patient, king. I'll interpret this dream. It'll be all right. Waiting is part of God's process. I don't have it in my notes. I won't take long to say it. But you've heard me teach before on the birth, death, and supernatural fulfillment of the vision or the dream. Everything that God does in your life will start with a vision or a dream, something that He wants to do. But it will always die the death of self-will and human ability. Like Abraham is 100 years old when Isaac is born and Sarah is 90. And when it is humanly impossible, then God lets it happen supernaturally. It is part of the ways of God. In the wilderness wanderings of Israel in the Old Testament, the psalm says, they waited not for his counsel, Psalm 106, 13, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. He gave them their requests, but he sent leanness into their soul. Ooh. You want God to say, okay, here. But now there's a consequence to that. In the temptations of Jesus... Satan offered him the kingdoms of the world. If you'll fall down and worship me, I will give you the kingdoms of the world. Now the Bible teaches that eventually the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Revelation eleven fifteen, And Jesus was patient. Psalm 37 is a psalm of patience if you're taking notes. And we should be patient and wait on the Lord. Psalm 37, 7 on the screen. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. Fret not thyself because of Him who prospereth in His way, because of the man who brings wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger, forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord shall inherit the earth. Jesus quoted this verse, didn't He, in the Beatitudes. To some extent. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. Yet you'll con diligently consider his place, and he shall not be. But the meek shall inherit the earth, shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Hebrews 10, 35 on the screens. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. I love this verse. For you have need of patience, that after you've done the will of God, so I've already done what the Lord told me to do. The writer of Hebrews said, you have need of patience that after, even after you've done the will of God, that you might receive the promise. And then I'll skip the rest of these verses, but they're powerful. Hebrews 10, 10 all the way through verse 39. Making wise decisions. Now I realize that some people have a hard time making a decision. They're afraid of failure. They're adverse to risk. You know, the imagery of pulling the trigger. They just can't pull the trigger. They can't make a decision. Well, I hope if you know principles, that the Lord will help you have confidence to make wise decisions in the right way at the right time. Sometimes a decision comes to you, and you know it's the right decision, and you don't have to wait 10 years to make that decision. You've dealt with this in the past, and you know what to do. But when you're impulsive, when you're not patient, you can be like Abraham and Sarah, God impatient, waiting on this promised son. Sarah has a great idea. 
Why don't you have a child by Hagar? That'll be great. And it turned out so wonderful, did it? That's like precedent, right? You go back and say, how did that turn out for Abraham? Not so good. Ishmael's descendants are still thorns in the side of the descendants of Isaac. The Lord told Ishmael's mother, Hagar, that your child, you're going to have a son. His hand is going to be against every man, and every man's hand is going to be against him. So if you're not patient and you make a mess out of your life, God will not bless your mess. But he'll love you through it. Amen. And while I'm on this subject of patience, making bad decisions, I want to remind you of a sermon I last preached on January 3rd, 2016 with the epic question, Can God bless a chili dog? And I taught in that January a series on the blessed life. Some people wait and wait and wait, like Abraham. They waited, and then after waiting, they still make a bad decision. You know, it's like looking at your watch, like King Saul. So I've waited long enough. It's time for me to take things into my own hands. And then he made a really bad decision after waiting seven days. And I spoke about that a couple years ago, but it's in my notes for tonight, but I'm going to scan past that when Paul said, Saul said, I forced myself. and gave these three reasons, you know. My popularity is declining. I'm disappointed because God's not coming through for me. Samuel's not here. And then I see trouble on the horizon with the Philistines. So I just had to do what I had to do. After waiting, I then became impulsive and made a really, really bad decision that cost him the kingdom. The tenth point is process. Process. So let's assume that you've covered all your nine points, all these bases, to make a wise decision. You've considered principles, purpose, priorities, prayer, peace of God. You've looked at precedent. You've listened to the perspective of counsel. You've considered the people in your life and you've been patient. With all the care that you've taken to make a wise decision, now, how are you going to implement this decision? If it's a small decision, that may be rather simple and not that uh, complicated. But I want to try to help give some insight into how to process a pretty good-sized decision to help it go well with the people in your life uh, in, in, the, in terms of a larger decision. So here are some questions. Who should know about this decision? If you're married or if you have children, they may be, need to be part of the journey to the decision. In other words, bring them in while you're thinking this through and processing the decision. Don't make them, make them wait till the end. As a leader, I think it's important to have people in the know before, you know, I'm going to say it like this, the train or the bus has left the station and you ask people to jump on board when the train's going 50 miles an hour. And they would love to get on board, but it's just moving too fast. You've waited too long. You should have let them be a part of that decision earlier on. Who should know this decision? And that's going to be another question. If someone is affected by the decision, they should be informed about the decision. If it's your spouse, they should play a part of the decision, not be told after the decision is made. And then you need to ask the question, what should they know? Do they need to know the details or just a high-level overview of the decision? How much information should be shared enough but not an overkill? Depending on who it is and how they'll be affected by the decision, let them see the decision unfold, and I've kind of said that. Most people will want to know, how is this going to affect me? Right? Because ultimately... We care about how this decision is going to affect us. So you need to let them know. And then the, my next question is, when should they know? You should be told first, second, third. Should they know in advance or at the time the decision is acted on? And as I mentioned, this is kind of flows together some, but some people, know to, some people need to know when the decision is a possibility we're thinking about this. This offer's been made to me. And others just need to know when it is a done deal. 
They don't really need to know. It's not their right to know that early on. If you're seeking godly counsel, hopefully you don't make a decision and then go ask them how they think, what do they think about it? Oh, I've just decided to do X, Y, Z. What do you think about that? Well, I think you just told me you decided. You really want objective input or you just want a rubber stamp approval of what you've decided? And then, this is pretty big in our culture, how should they know? Does it merit a sit-down conversation? You know, I love email. Sometimes it's a transaction, a business, something you want to remember. It's a written record, but I like text messaging, too many of them for me, but sometimes a lack of courage keeps people from sitting down eye to eye and talking. So sometimes you need to communicate face to face. Sometimes a phone call is appropriate. Not as personal as face to face, but you're actually speaking to them and you can have voice inflection. You can't see, but you can hear. Now, you know, a lot of communication is nonverbal, right? So if you, don't, if you lose nonverbal by face-to-face, -face, you lose a lot of what you're trying to communicate when you're communicating a decision. Could it be in a text message? I know this is really common, but I know people that they make pretty big decisions, you know, like we are breaking up. You know, not even as good as in the old days when I was a kid. I love you. Do you love me? Check one. Yes, no. I mean, at least there was a little bit of, you know, process that decision. Or an email. You know, we're not acting for legal purposes here tonight, but I like clarity because, my goodness, you can misunderstand people so easily. So if it's kind of something to do with when I say business, church business, organizational business, even if I have a conversation, and some of you are involved in, in, in the legal world even way more than I am, and you follow up with an email to confirm what was said, just to make sure. And it's not because you don't trust. It's want, you want clarity. You want to try to avoid miscommunication. And then my next question is, from whom should they hear about this decision? Directly from you? From a family member? A liaison? You know, this is my really bad grammar saying, but way too many people say way too much, way too often, about way too many things to way too many people. Everybody's got a best friend. But you need to know who you talk to and in the right way. Now, I want to give you an example of processing a decision, uh, the example of Nehemiah. And I'll summarize this amazing story. I love the book of Nehemiah. It's the book of rebuilding and restoration, right? Nehemiah gets a burden. My Youth Congress message is General Youth President, Little Rock, Arkansas, the birth of a burden. So I, Nehemiah gets a burden. But Nehemiah serves a king who has an incredible amount of power. And Nehemiah needs the approval, but he also needs the support of that king. Nehemiah 1 and 4. Came to pass when I heard these words, Nehemiah speaking of himself, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah needed to make a good decision. And so the first thing he did is he prayed and fasted about this decision. And at the right time, the Lord opened a door for Nehemiah to communicate his request of this decision to the king. When he goes to the king, he's going in to take him his wine and the king sees that he's sad and asks him. It opens the door for Nehemiah to talk to him and Nehemiah shares with him this dream that he has of going back and rebuilding the walls and restoring the city of Jerusalem. But the king has some questions for him. How long are you going to be gone? When are you coming back? So now... In this decision, he's telling the person he's under authority, you know, who he answers to, he's processing this in the right way. And as a result of this decision, 
And the way Nehemiah processed, processed it, Nehemiah received permission from the king. He received provision from the king. He received protection from the king. And he received power from the king. All this happened, the authority to get the job done. So I've seen people get requests turned down because of a poor process. This is not part of my message, but sometimes really bad timing. You know that person is not really in a right mood or frame of mind or they're preoccupied. They're not really going to hear you out. So you're probably not going to have the best hearing. But remember, Nehemiah waited until the king asked him and he got, felt the open door to talk to him. That's not a part of my notes, but you know, we'll just throw that in there for good measure. I've seen people get turned down because of a bad attitude, a lack of ethics. The respect and trust are really important. And you may feel like if you tell a person asking for permission that they'll oppose you. I've seen people say it's easier to get forgiveness than it is to get permission. So I'll just do it. Well, not here and not with God. I'm not God, but it's not easier. I think it's actually a sin, if you want to ask me my opinion, to be presumptuous and act out from under authority and do something without Permission and without authority. And you're also not trusting God to work on your behalf. When you act unethically, you lose credibility, respect, support. You may lose your job. You certainly would lose your favor with God by being unethical, dishonest. The end, the thing you're trying to do, does not justify the means. The end regulates the means. So stubborn, self-willed people who don't trust God don't wait, don't process decisions right. There's a way to process a wise decision. Amen. If you don't mind, please stand. So I, I want to say this in closing, and I have a lot of notes about this, but for the sake of time, I'll condense this. Well, what if you've already made a really bad decision? What do you do? I mean, we've all made a bad decision regardless of the magnitude of that decision. No one here is, can say they've never made a bad decision. Well, you've heard me teach that while you're reaping the consequences of a bad decision, sow for a future by making a good decision. Galatians talks about that. Sometimes you have to cut your losses like King Amaziah did. He had hired 100,000, he paid 100,000 talents of silver to hire mercenaries, and the Lord told him to fire them and send them home. And he asked the Lord, what about all the money I just spent? And the Lord said, don't you know I can give you more? Cut your losses, do the right thing, make it right. Sometimes we need to just say, okay, I'm not doing anything else. I'm stopping right here. Just stop in your tracks, admit you're wrong, and make it right to the best of your ability, and know that if you'll do the right thing, that God will honor you for doing the right thing. Amen. Sometimes we need to come to ourselves like the prodigal son. Change our attitude about the way we think about life and decisions. Amen.